Ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you can head your seats, we're going to get started here in just a second. Head back to your seats. We're going to be in the, Matt is going to be preaching in the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read it out loud here in just a second. Romans chapter 6. Ezra, go sit down. Romans chapter 6, this is God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us alone in the world. You've given us your spirit and you've given us your book. 
Help us, God, to apply ourselves to it, Lord. Would you illuminate the text for us today? We sense your need, our need for you afresh, God. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. As a... Just a couple of things I want to say ahead of time. Just thanks again for allowing the elders to go on a retreat these last few days. Um, thanks for praying for us. I think it's fair to say, I think I can speak for all the brothers, that we probably had the most uh, fruitful and uh, unified time that we've ever had together. So we're thankful for that. Yeah, you can be excited about that. That's great. Yep, the rest of you should be thankful for that too. <clears throat> Second, uh, after the service today, we're going to have a, uh, if, you're a, if you're a guest here or you've just started visiting the church uh, or uh, something of that nature and you have any questions regarding the church, what we're about, who we are, we're going to have a question answer time right down here in this east wing here right after the service. It's just going to be me, so if you have any questions about the sermon or questions about the church, please feel free to join us down there at the east wing and be happy to answer any questions that you have. So this morning... We start a new series. We're going to take a break from Ephesians uh, for several weeks here, six or seven weeks or so. And we have a tradition at the Gathering Church. And the tradition is that during the Advent season, we intentionally slow down and we consider how the gospel has changed us in the last year. Now today isn't the first day of Advent. We're still a few weeks out, but it seemed good for us to spend a little longer this year reflecting on how the gospel has changed us. Because it should. It should change us. It's certainly implicit in the question and certainly implicit in slowing down to reflect is that the gospel should change us. Are we growing as people more into the image of Jesus? Have we laid more hold of the gospel in our daily lives? Have we loosened the grip on ourselves? Have we become less jealous? Have we become more patient? Are we kinder? Are we more hospitable? Are we a friendlier people. Now, why do I say, how has the gospel changed us? And then ask questions like, are you less jealous? What is the relationship between the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus? What's the relationship to that and your actions? Well, let me put it to you this way. Why is it that we're jealous. What do you want that you don't have? Why do you think you need it? Or if you had it, do you think your life would count more? Do you think you'd be, on the whole, happier? Your life, on the whole, would be better? This, my friends, is precisely where the gospel comes in. God has already given us the greatest of all possible things, his own son. He's welcomed us into the inner life of the Trinity. He said that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is our brother. We're going to live with him forever. We're going to dwell with him forever, reign with him forever. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore are ours. And as you begin to lay more hold of that, as the reality of that goes deeper down into your heart, when you have another aha moment, when the penny drops a little bit more, we, we become less jealous. 
Why would we daydream about our income doubling in the next year or compare ourselves to other people? Who in the world cares when the Son of God has fully and completely given himself to you? So let's spend some time thinking about this over the next several weeks. How has the gospel changed us? How has the gospel been applied to our life? Not just thinking in terms of our justification, that we are right with God, right standing with God through Jesus Christ, which is absolutely true. But how has the gospel come into the inner workings of our heart? The things that we do day in and day out. Why do we get angry at our spouse? Now there's hot spots in the scriptures that I personally go to for constant encouragement. Genesis 50, Psalm 16, Psalm 24, Psalm 73, the servant songs in Isaiah, Philippians 2 and 3, 2 Corinthians 5, but Romans 6, 7, and 8 has probably been the most helpful to me over the years. And that's probably partially because of the teachers that have taught me these texts, John Piper, John Stott, and Tim Keller. Now, there's a danger, though, in me telling you this, that this is where I go and it's most helpful to me all over the years, because you're probably now tempted to think, okay, great, these are going to be some great sermons. Well, no. <laughs> They're just going to probably be adequate. So. so today is an introductory sermon of sorts. It's looking at how the Spirit changes us, and we're going to do this for the next several weeks. So if I say something that just sounds introductory in nature, or I say something that you say, I wish she would go deeper in that, I likely will in the next several weeks. So here we go. Let's look at the text. Chapter 6, verse 1, right in the beginning. Actually, you need to go back just two verses to 520 and 521. To best understand Romans chapter 6, all the way 1 through 23, you need to understand that Romans chapter 6 is an exposition and an explanation of Romans 5, 20, and 21, which say this. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says that the purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law, was to increase trespass. And then he goes on to say that because of this, sin increased, but at the same time, grace abounded all the more. Which leads to the question and begs to the question that we get in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul's question there in Romans chapter 6 verse 1 is because of what he's just said in Romans chapter 5, 20 to 21. And he gives the answer quickly in verse 2. He says, by no means. And then he spends the entire chapter unpacking by no means. So let's do that. Let's unpack Paul's answer by no means. So point one. Point one who we were. Who we were. First, what does Paul mean here, right here in the beginning, when he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's verse 2. What does he mean by that? What does he mean that we died to sin? 
or maybe understanding it more fully. There's a verb here in the past tense, died, and there's a verb here in the future tense, live. If we've died, how shall we live? So in what sense does he mean that we died? Now, one of the ways that this has been taught over the years that I think is profoundly incorrect and unhelpful is that to be dead to sin means that we are insensible to sin. What do I mean by that? I mean that when something dies, it loses its senses. And some ways that teachers and commentators have taught us over the years is that to be dead to sin means that we have no sense of it. Now, think about this. Think about if you saw uh, an animal laying in a gutter or you know, in a, on the side of the road and you were unsure if it was dead or alive. I mean, you would know right away if you walked up to it and put your foot on it. You would just know right away. Did it respond to you? Does it have senses? Or is it dead as a doornail, dead? So the teaching goes, if you're a Christian, then your senses are dead to sin. But the problem with this teaching, at least it's wrong in two ways. One, experientially, is that that's not our experience. That's not our experience. We, we still have inclinations to sin. We still feel the temptation of sin in our bodies. And the danger then could be for us to doubt our union with Christ. Because, you know, hey, if we're supposed to be dead to these inclinations and I still have them, my senses aren't dead to sin, then maybe I'm not really dead. Maybe I'm not really united with him. But second, textually, this can't be what Paul means either. Because you see, in the scriptures, in the Bible, when sin and death are coupled, when sin and death are coupled, they're coupled for the purpose of judgment. Sin and death are coupled for the purpose of judgment. And this is from the very beginning of the scriptures, right? When you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Death is sin's penalty. And this is clear in the teaching of Romans too, as well. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Or even later in our text here in chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. So when Paul's connecting these two here, when he's connecting the idea of sin and death, he's doing it for the purpose of judgment. Because the penalty for sin is death. It's separation from God. So our first point here is to remember that's who we were. We were separated from God. We were not dead to sin. But verse 10 tells us in our text that Jesus Christ died to sin. Verse 10 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. In other words, Jesus meant, met the demands of, he took the penalty of, and received the judgment of sin. He suffered under the wrath of God, and he died. He died to sin. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He is the one that died to sin. We were buried, therefore, verse 4, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
When you were united with Jesus, when you were united with him, you were united with him in his death. That means that our death, my friends, has already been paid. The wages of sin is death, but when you are united with Jesus Christ, you are united into his death. He died the death so that we could have his life. Krista read this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. That is good news, my friends. So to be dead to sin doesn't mean we're dead to the influence of it. It means that we're dead to the guilt of sin. We are dead to the guilt of sin, dead to the penalty of sin, and that is our justification. We are right with God. We have a right standing with God because Jesus Christ died our death and imputes to us and gives to us his perfection, his perfect obedience. And we're going to unpack that through the whole series because it's our justification that we have right standing with God. That is the grounds for how we grow. It is the grounds for our sanctification. Sanctification means to grow in holiness. And the way that we grow in holiness is we continually go back and remember our justification. You were dead. You were dead. You are not dead anymore. Jesus Christ died for you. He died the death. You are not dead anymore. The guilt of sin is not on you anymore. Walk in newness of life. So that's first. We're under, we were under sin's penalty. But second part of who we are, there's two parts of who we are. The second part of who, excuse me, who we were. The second part of who we were is that we were under sin's mastery. We were under sin's mastery. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone As obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So look at this phrase here, though, in verse 16. It says, present yourself as obedient slaves. That's a pretty remarkable phrase, and I bet we don't get it at first glance. So let me unpack it. What Paul is saying is he's saying that the essence of the kind of slavery he's talking about is obedience, The kind of slavery that we normally think about is like antebellum slavery. But Paul is talking about a different kind of slavery. Paul is talking about a kind of slavery that says, whatever you obey, that actually is your master. Whatever you obey, that is functionally your master. And this is where, in this series, we start to get into how the human heart actually works. And we can begin to understand who we actually were. 
We can understand how the heart works and we can learn to change and we can understand the voices and we can understand the descriptions of human flourishing and the values of our culture and the stories that we see on the news and TV and movies and the themes that just come rushing at us. Do we obey them? Do we obey them? Why, why do we visit, maybe you don't, why do we visit Amazon.com so much? Free shipping. Did you buy more stuff this year than you did last year? The narrative of our culture, what human flourishing is, what is valuable, what comes at us is consumerism. Buy more and therefore you'll be more happy. Do you remember after September 11th when the President Bush got up there and he spoke to the nation, do you remember what his advice was to the nation on how we can show that we're okay still and how we're going to be all right? He said, buy stuff and travel. He said, go buy stuff. Show the world that we're all right. Spend some money, people. That's the message of our culture. The message of our culture is consumerism. It's the values that constantly are coming our direction. That's how we know, that's how we show we're okay, the president says. But don't you see that what Paul is saying here, Paul is saying here that if you obey the narratives and the values of the culture, you're actually a slave to it. One of the other major narratives of our culture is one of self-fulfillment, the one of uh, of, of radical individualism, right? That the path to human flourishing and the road to true flourishing is to be the most self-expressed version of yourself. And that creeps into our marriages. It creeps into our marriages and we think that this person's job is to fulfill me. This person's job is to bring meaning and significance to my life. Or we think about it in the sexual revolution. We say, it would be wrong for me to not act on my inclinations. If this is the way I was born, if this is the way that I am, it would therefore be wrong and immoral for me to not act on it. If I have same-sex attraction, I ought act on it. That's the lie in the myth of our culture. Because self-fulfillment is one of the lies, is one of the themes, is one of the stories that we're constantly inundated with. And it does, my friends, it does slip into the church. It slips into our marriages, it slips into our relationships with one another. It's not he who wishes to find his life must lose it. That's the message of the gospel. That my job in life is to make my wife beautiful, happy, lovely by laying myself down for her. Sacrificing my desires, my will, my inclinations for her sake. And when we lay ourselves down, that's how we actually find it. Has that come into our lives more this year than it did last year? Because that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ won by losing Jesus Christ redeemed his people by becoming weak and vulnerable and broken. And that should have a radical and pervasive effect on our lives. What's even more striking, though, about what Paul says is that he only gives us two options. He says you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Just two options is all he gives us. Verse 18 
slaves to sin, or, verse 18, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness. Those righteousness, those are the choices. We're either slaves to God or we're slaves to sin. You remember a couple years ago we went through, for those of you that were here, we went through Exodus and we slowed way down when we got to the Ten Commandments and we did a, a sermon for each of the Ten Commandments. And remember the first commandment says, I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. But that's the only choice that God gives to his people. He doesn't say option three, because the choice is either have other gods or make me your God. The choice of non-God doesn't exist. And that's a radical theme that Paul is getting at in this text. He's saying that whatever we obey, that is functionally our master. Whatever it is we obey. The way in which we find meaning, significance, value to our life. Whatever message is coming at us, this is how you'll find meaning, this is how you'll find significance, this is how you'll find value. To the degree to which you obey it, it's your master, and you are enslaved to it. Why do you lust? Maybe we lust because it's a way in which we can feel valuable and have control over our life. We lust because the thought of another woman being captivated by your manliness would mean you have value and meaning and significance. Paul is saying that there's something that we each obey, something that gives us our worth, and that thing is our master. Well, maybe your question now is, how do you know what it is? Well, let me show you. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That last word there. Obey its, its uh, passions. NIV, I think, says evil desires. NAS says obey its lusts. And I think King James said lusts of the flesh. Now, lusts or desires are actually a, a pretty good at getting at what this word means. It gets at the idea. Because the word here is the word that we've gone back to often. That we've looked at often as a church. And tried to understand our own hearts and how we act. And the word is epithumia. And thumia just means desire. And epi just means over. So epithumia is an over desire. It just means wanting something too much. It's an over desire. It's a desire that if you have it. And that you think when you obtain whatever it is. Your life will have meaning and significance. And Paul is saying that we obey the desires of that thing, and it controls us and has mastery over us. So again, how do you know? How do you know if you have something that's just a desire, or if that thing has become an epi-desire? How do you know? It's pretty simple, I think. And it comes down to this. What do you do when you don't have it? What do you do when you don't get it or lose it? It's a great indicator. If something is a desire or an over-desire. You wanted a raise at work, but you didn't get it. Were you disappointed or devastated? One's normal. It's normal to be disappointed when something happens. The other is an epi-desire. 
you want a certain kind of family, and you're not getting it, or you didn't get it, disappointed or driven to despair. Because one of the points of uh, understanding, one of the ways that we need to understand epithemia is that it's not just bad things that can become over-desires. It's not just evil things that can become over-desires. That's why terms like NIV, uh, evil desires, or even lusts of the flesh, they, 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 they bring up things in our mind that are inherently bad. But good things, things that God gave us for our good, we can want them so much to the degree that those things become our God. They can become our spiritual masters. They can control us. And you know that they're controlling you because when you don't have them, you're not just disappointed, you're devastated. You're driven to a point of despair. You want to be attractive and liked by men, and maybe you aren't. Are you disappointed? Are you driven to an eating disorder? Are you driven to cut yourself? See, it's real serious, really quick. See how the human heart works. We want something so deeply. It has mastery over us. We lash out in wicked and awful and sinful ways, ways that can be destructive to ourselves and harmful to ourselves. But the problem is in our heart. The problem is that we are obeying We're obeying its evil intentions. We have a a, a master that ought not be our master. If we're ever going to grow, you need to know your own kind of slavery. You need to know the ways in which your heart is prone to have epi-desires. So that's the first point. You were set free from the penalty of sin And you have been set free from the mastery of sin because you have a new master. You have a new master. You have a new master who gives you all the value and joy and significance that your heart could ever long for. And this master doesn't overpromise and underdeliver to you. He doesn't. This master always gives you far beyond all that you can ask or think. So let's talk about how we can get it. So point two, we need to remember how we were set free. How we were set free. Look at, look at verse three again with me. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's just talking to those who have been converted. He's talking to those that are Christians. So he says in verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united in a resurrection like his. So two things. There's a death here, and there's a resurrection here. His death, we already kind of got into this. His death was our death, which means we don't have to die our own death, which means the penalty for the evil desires and the epithumias that you have, they're not yours anymore. The penalty for them are gone. Because Jesus Christ has said, my death is now your death. In me you died. You no longer have the penalty of sin over you. 
But he also says, he says, we will be united with him in his resurrection. His future is our future. That's where we're going, my friends. His future is our future. We sang it this morning. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. He's making all things new. All the power that God has. Paul will say later in Romans that all of, the, all of creation groans and creaks, longing for the appearing of the Son of God. All of creation longs to be renewed and made new. All that power, that resurrection power, is yours. You are united to him in his resurrection. The nations will all be astonished at him, we sang this morning. All of that, the renewal of the cosmos as we know it, all of God's resurrecting power belongs to you. That, my friends, is striking. We are united to him in his resurrection. His future is our future. We don't even begin to understand the depths of this, I think. Second, look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul talks here about an old self. So one of the things that we have to remember and have to learn is that we have to daily live out of our new identity. Daily live out of our new identity. And in living that way, that's how we actually begin to change. When we live in light of our new identity, we are no longer dead to sin. It no longer has mastery over me. It is my old self. It is my old body. That's not who I am. When we consider ourselves, as he's about to say in verse 11, reckon yourselves, as he's about to say, when we actually walk in the way that we are, no longer to our old self. Don't walk in your old self anymore, my friends. That's not who you are. God has set you free. He's given you himself. He's given you his spirit. He's united himself with you in his death. He's united himself with you in his resurrection. And when we actually begin to obey him and walk in the ways that he walks, that's how we actually change. That's how we are become holy or sanctified, as it were. When we walk in light of our justification. Verse 11. Now what's, what's amazing about verse 11, about reuniting ourselves and remember who we actually are, is it says, reckon yourselves, right? Is that what ESV says? Consider, that's no good. Reckon is like, reckon yourselves. I mean, it's a good word, don't get me wrong. <laughs> But reckon yourselves. You know what's striking about this is that this is the first time in this entire epistle. He's been going on for six and a half chapters. And this is the first time he tells his readers to do something. And what does he tell them to do? He says, remember that all that stuff is actually you. The first thing he wants to tell them is say, reckon yourselves. Reckon yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The first thing that the apostle would tell his readers is to remember everything I just told you. That's striking. That's amazing. That's remarkable. 
And that's where we ought to be, my friends. Are we growing more in that way as a local church? Is that the kind of thing that you're saying to each other in your triads, in your one-on-one relationships, in your community groups? Are you saying, brother, remember who you are. You are dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Sister, remember who you are. You ever say that in your family? Your kids act a certain way. I don't know if this is good parenting or not, but this is what I do sometimes. I say, that's not who you are. That is not what this family does. Remember who you are. And that is what God is saying to us through his word, through his apostle this morning. He's saying, remember, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You have been set free. And that, my friends, is one of the keys It's one of the keys to walking in newness of life. It's one of the keys to be sanctified. It's one of the keys to be growing and have the gospel changing us is that we need to daily remember who we are. You're a child of the king. He loved you and gave himself up for you. So let me just give us a few remarks in closing. Third point. Some of our questions, I think, when we think about um, walking in obedience, walking in holiness, because that's what the call is. The call is it's, it's, it's cyclical, right? You are not saved by your works. God did not say to Israel, I will, get you, I will get you out of Egypt, and I will get you across that Red Sea as long as you obey my Ten Commandments. No. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of bondage. I brought you out of slavery. I brought you across the Red Sea. I brought you into a land that I promised I would give you. Now obey me and be my people. That's true with us, my friends. It's true with us. God has done everything. You're not going to be any more saved in heaven than you are today. But you will be more holy. But you will be more holy. And the more that you become like him, oh, to be like him, we sang this morning, right? The more that you become like him, the more that you want to become like him. Because the more you become like him, you long to be with him and you see his love and his grace and his presence. And it becomes more real to you and more evident to you and more desirous to you. And the things of this earth grow slowly dim in the light of his glory and grace. The old slavery, the old taskmaster stuff just starts to fade away and go away. But some of our Objections. One is it obedience is painful. It is. Obedience is painful. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought... You were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. 
is painful, my friends. It is. Obedience is painful. Being shaped and sanctified is challenging. It's difficult at times. It hurts. The second thing I think we think, though, I'll just say, it's painful, it's challenging, it's difficult, it hurts. But God is making for us. He's making us into something that he's going to dwell in himself. He's making us into something that requires pain at times. That requires the hard, uh, uh, these inward trials I do employ from something, something, he set thee free. That's a bad example. Don't start ever giving an example if you don't know where you're going with it. Um, the flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. That one works. Second, objections to walking in obedience and desiring holiness is that it's boring. It's boring. C.S. Lewis helped me a lot this week. In letters to an American lady, he said this, He says, oh, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, a truly holy person, it's resistible, irresistible. I think the point that he's making is that holy people are anything but boring. Holy people are people that are warm. They listen well. They're just as much about you as themselves, if not more even. They're honest, and there seems to be a general gleam in their eye. Holy people aren't boring. Holy people are the kind of people that laugh easily because they have few cares. At the same time, when life turns deadly serious, serious, there is no one that you would rather have in your corner and at your side. But becoming holy is hard work. It involves the smelting pot of life to remove the impurities from our lives. And becoming holy always involves dying to self so that Jesus Christ can be evident in our lives. Yet, life becomes all the richer. The more holy and the more like Jesus we actually become. And third, I think one of the reasons that we don't wholly give ourselves to God is that we're afraid. We're afraid. I have a quote here from C.S. Lewis. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, and favorite wishes every day, and death to your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will be raised from the dead. Look at yourself, excuse me, look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. We think about our masters, though. We think about masters that we would absolutely, totally give ourselves to, and we're afraid of it because we don't want to lose control. Because the masters that we're used to, when we submit ourselves to them through our epithemias or even just people that we know, when we submit ourselves to them, they harm us. They abuse us. And it seems like that sometimes that God does that to us too. 
And that's why it can be so scary. We're afraid of it. But we have a master. We have a master who used all the power that he had for you. He used all the power that he had. Only Jesus Christ could conquer sin, death, and the devil. Only he could do it. And he used his power to come to you. He used his power that he might come to you, live your life, die your death, and bring you back to the Father. Welcome you into the inner life of the Trinity. If he's done that for you, if he's done that for you, if he's really done that for you, then you can trust yourself to him. You can submit yourself to him. You can fully obey him. Even when it seems like the house is shaking and it's inexplicable to you as to why. Why is he shaking the house as he is? Because he's busting out a wing here. He's adding a floor here. He's making you into something that is beautiful and right and good. Because the alternatives, my friends, is to submit yourself to your taskmasters, to obey the evil desires, the epithemias of your heart. And as C.S. Lewis said, that in the long run will only make us lonely, desperate, rage-filled, and ruined people. But if we run after Jesus, if we chase hard after him, if we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and we lay down everything for his sake, we will grow into his image. And we will be a people who are changed by the gospel. Remember the gospel, my friends. You are not who you were. You are who you are. You have been united with Jesus Christ in his death and his, in his resurrection. His future is your future. You can completely entrust yourself to him. No fear of condemnation, no fear of dread, no fear of him abusing you, using you, only making you in to a beautiful and holy person. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your love and grace towards us. We thank you for this text, God. We pray that you would help us in the coming weeks to reflect, God. I do pray, Lord, I pray for a mighty work of your Spirit in this church in the coming days and weeks and months, God. Make us to be a people who are enamored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us a new people, God. Make us more holy and more like you in the next year. Let us remind ourselves daily, God, of who you are and what you've done for us. Would you help us, Lord? We ask all these in Jesus' name. Amen. So my friends, this morning we've heard the scriptures preached, we've heard the gospel, we've heard how we are right with God now through his finished work for us, and we now come to the table to commune with him, to fellowship with the living God. He has given himself to us, he has welcomed us to his table. So the table of the Lord is open for all who've uh, uh, repented of their sins and trust Jesus, baptized um, if that describes you and you're a visitor here today, we just want to welcome you to the table and to partake with us. If that's not you, if you're not a Christian this morning, I encourage you to not take the elements. This is a 
covenant meal, those who find their life and identity with Jesus. Again, if you're not a Christian, you have questions about the sermon, I'll be over here in this east wing after the service. We'll come up row by row to uh, receive the elements, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the pastors will lead us uh, through the elements together.